Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Towards the end of last year, we spent a lot of time looking at the history of the CIA during our special CIA Month on the Warfare podcast. But what about that other intelligence-driven security organization in the United States, the FBI? When was the Federal Bureau of Investigation formed, and how did its most famous figure, the bulldog-looking and fearsome J. Edgar Hoover, transform the agency from a failing organization riddled with scandal into a modern law enforcement machine? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and to find out, I traveled over to the United States to chat with an old friend of the podcast, Professor Beverly Gage. From her office at Yale University, Beverly reveals the decade-long investigation behind her new book, G-Man. And along the way, she reveals the history of J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, and the making of the American century. Enjoy. Hi, Bev. Welcome back on to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm all right. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you back on. We promised listeners last time we were on and we were talking about the bombing of Wall Street back in the 1920s, that when your new book came out, we would get you back on. And we have kept true to that promise. And not only that, I'm back here at Yale University in New Haven in Connecticut. We've got the bells ringing outside. I'm sure we're going to have sirens kicking up pretty soon. All to talk about your new book, on J. Edgar Hoover. Now, he's one of those figures that just spans American history and seems to be involved in one way or another in every major event of the 20th century. He was appointed director of the FBI in 1924, and he served in that role until his death in 1972. So he is a behemoth, a massive figure of the American political scene, nationally and internationally as well. But despite all of that, we can understand why we might be interested in J. Edgar Hoover. Why would you want to dedicate about a decade of your career to writing the book? And we were talking about it just before we started recording. It's over 800 pages. It's a tome. Why would you want to dedicate that to J. Edgar Hoover? It's funny when I, over the last decade that I've been working on this, have told people I'm writing a biography of J. Edgar Hoover, they often say, why would you want to spend your time with that terrible man? And I think for me, it's some of the reasons that you already mentioned, which is that, first of all, Hoover himself is really fascinating as a figure, both his personal life and his political life. But the fact that he was there for so long had his fingers in so many aspects of American politics means that this is not only a book about his life, but is a book about the city of Washington and its coming of age, about the United States and its coming of age as a national and then global power. And so he is just an unusually good vehicle for doing all of those things at once. And that's really what drew me in. That makes perfect sense. So in essence, Hoover is a lens through which you can analyze a changing world of the United States. Absolutely. And I think particularly the changing nature of American domestic politics and of the American government, because Hoover was born in Washington in 1895. He is really a pure creature of the city of Washington. And uh, he is there as the American government begins to expand through the New Deal, through the war, through the Cold War. And in some sense, he's just a guy who's there in the right place at the right time. But of course, he becomes an architect 
effect of so many of those changes as well. You refer to him as a pure creature of Washington. I think some people might say an impure creature, but we'll get to that <laughs> in a little bit. But tell us about the man himself. You say he's born during the 1800s. I know kind of vaguely that his nickname was Speed, and he said there's lots of varying reasons why this might be the case. But he said it was because he was super fast as a grocery boy packing bags as a kid. But what do we know about little Edgar, as you refer to him in your book? Yeah, so he's born in Washington, and he's born into a family that actually has a pretty long history already at that point of federal service and particularly involvement in the federal civil service, which is incredibly unusual in the late 19th century because it's not a very big government at that point. Washington is kind of a backwater, and so. He occupies a really special and interesting position. I think the other thing that he really takes out of his roots in Washington is that this is a period when segregation is on the rise. Jim Crow is really coming into being, and Washington during these years is a southern segregated city. And so he comes of age with that process of segregation. It really shapes his racial worldview and his racial politics for most of his life. And I think those two strains. First of all, his kind of belief in the government, in government service, in career government service on the one hand, and then his social conservatism, which expresses not only around race but around religion, particularly around the struggle against communism. Those things are there from a very early moment, and they really come out of Washington itself. So he goes to the Washington public schools. He doesn't come from a rich family, and he's sort of a young star in the Washington public school system, which is itself segregated. So he's going to a white public school in Washington, and in high school he's the valedictorian and the debate champion and this kind of star. And then he stays in Washington and goes to George Washington University for law school immediately after that. And he is really known to most of his friends during these years as a slightly uptight. Perfect student type. His nickname, Speed, that you mentioned. Some people say it's because he talked so fast in order to compensate for a stutter. He says it's because he was so fast and efficient at his childhood jobs, which included delivering groceries for people at Washington's Eastern Market and various odd jobs like that. How many friends did he have? He doesn't sound like a popular guy. Well, it's funny. I mean, he is someone that I think people always respected to, respected, were drawn to, but didn't necessarily love. And I think that was true in high school. It was true in college, and that it certainly continued to be true at the FBI. So he was very successful in formal organizations. You know, he was captain of his cadet corps in high school. He was president of his fraternity, which was this sort of reactionary Southern fraternity when he was in college. And then he rose very quickly through the ranks of the Justice Department when he got out. So lots of people. Kind of respect him, admire him, promote him, support him, have these deep loyalties to him, but I'm not sure how much they love him. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a different question. And you certainly wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him, especially later in life. But one thing I was struck by was your comment that he had this religious drive about him, and that came through when he came to tackle communism. So. Let's talk about some of these key moments in his career. You mentioned that he was in the Department of Justice, the DOJ, and that's how he rose his way up. But one of his first battles in there was against the Bolsheviks. How successful was he in taking on that fight? And that was during, I guess, during the First World War. Right. He graduated from law school in the spring of 1917, which was a heck of a moment to be in Washington as a young lawyer. This is just as the U.S. is entering the First World War. So a lot of his friends actually either volunteered or were drafted into the service, but he went into the Justice Department, which gave him exemption from military service. And so he went in very quickly, and he stayed there. He happened to arrive at the Justice Department at a moment when it's beginning to do all sorts of experiments with first wartime surveillance and then peacetime surveillance of political radicals. These weren't issues on which he had very fixed ideas, I think, before this moment, other than a kind of general suspicion of dissenters and radicals that anyone might have. But his first job at the Justice Department is helping out with German internment 
in the United States, which is not widely known. Everybody knows about Japanese internment in the Second World War, but there's a relatively limited but real German internment program. About 10,000 people were interned in the United States during the First World War, and that was his first job. What element was his first job? Was it tracking down who these people were and getting them interned? He was not the investigator.、Okay. He was the lawyer sitting in Washington. So the investigators、oh, would go out, and these were not, you know, high-tech, deep investigations. No, 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 no. They would go out and they would say, "Hey, you know, this guy's neighbor says he looks suspicious." This is what we've gotten from the interview with the neighbors. They would send the file to Washington, and the lawyers in Washington would make a judgment then about whether this person deserved to be interned or not. And some actually pretty major figures in the United States, the conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, were interned. Some major intellectuals, because they were seen as pro-German, and there was almost no formal process. I mean, it was bad administrative <laughs> processing in this、uh, wartime emergency. Agency. But that is his first job, so he's there as these questions about who's dangerous to the nation, who needs to be contained, are being invented and asked in these new ways, and then that very quickly. As the war comes to an end, turns into the first Red Scare, where the Justice Department keeps doing this sort of surveillance, not in terms of internment but deportation against political radicals, left-wing radicals, in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution. And so Hoover, at the tender age of 24, becomes the head of what's known as the Radical Division in the Justice Department in 1919. And his job is to kind of become a big expert on left-wing insurgent and revolutionary movements to help plan deportations, and he becomes kind of the first government expert at the federal level on the new communist parties which have formed in the United States in 1919. So he's. Both shaping and learning from all of this in a very dramatic way as a young man, and anti-communism really becomes kind of the operating logic and the great cause of his entire career. Communism is certainly a topic that he's done well to get on the ground floor. I mean, it's something that may or may not preoccupy his career for the rest of his life, and some might argue it continues to occupy many an intelligence agent's life around the world today. But as we move into that interwar period, is that something that he continues to remain solely focused on, or does he start to look at the rise of fascism as well? Well, there's a period from 1919 to 1920 when he's very involved in this kind of early campaign against these brand new parties. He's involved in the Palmer raids, which are deportation campaigns aimed at anarchists and communists. But pretty quickly, there's a backlash against all of this in the United States. A sense that this has been violative of people's civil liberties, that it is an overweening and inappropriate thing for the federal government to be doing in peace. Time and so by the mid 20s, the FBI really is moving out of a lot of that more political work. And so for his first decade, he becomes director in 1924. He's not doing a lot of this very political stuff. But when the war begins to sort of stir in the prospect of war, in any case, in the mid 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt comes to him and says, "I know we said you're not supposed to do that kind of political surveillance, but I'm really." Worried both about communism and kind of left-wing organizing in the United States, and particularly about fascist movements in the United States, and so he quietly licenses Hoover to begin doing this without the authority of Congress and without really the knowledge of most people, and so that's how Hoover moves back into political surveillance work. So politically, he gets a blank check there. Financially, does he get the same? Roosevelt gives him a kind of secret appropriation from an unnamed, kind of discretionary、oh, presidential、wow. source. When 1939 comes along and the war starts in earnest, this all becomes much more public. The appropriations expand dramatically. Nobody quite mentions that the FBI has already been doing this for a few years, but Roosevelt does quite quickly say the FBI is going to be in tar- charge of all sabotage, subversion, espionage, counterespionage in the United States. So all of a sudden, it becomes a pretty good idea. So take us through some of this Second World War history. What controversies, what successes does Hoover start to dabble in? I was really fascinated by the material I found on the Second World War because I think it's actually one of the less 
studied and less well-known periods of FBI history. The main thing that the FBI has to do in the Second World War is reinvent itself as a wartime intelligence agency and particularly figure out how to do counter-espionage, which frankly, they have no idea how to do. They haven't been a spy agency of any sort. In fact, the United States basically didn't have a spy agency I always find that remarkable. It's so bizarre that, you know, we think of the US as this world superpower now, arguably the hegemon, yet just so recently in history, it didn't have that entire apparatus in place. And if I remember correctly, they had to turn to the British for quite a lot of help in trying to establish these sort of organizations and infrastructure. That's absolutely right. You know, they look around and they say, you know, who's been doing this for a long time, almost everywhere in the world? And they happen upon their British friends. And Hoover works particularly closely with a man named William Stevenson, who is basically the British intelligence emissary in the United States in the period before the U.S. has actually entered the war, because Americans like to talk about how they were right there on the front lines in the Second World War, because, of course, the truth is that took the United States almost two and a half years to actually enter the war in a formal sense. But the FBI is at it very early on. So in late 1939, and then especially in 1940, is basically reorganizing itself as a wartime intelligence agency. Its size doubles in 1940 and 1941. And so there's this process of reinvention that has to happen. They have some successes and some failures on that front. They are learning from the British. They are sending American agents over to London to be taught, you know, what do we do with this secret code kind of stuff? And then they are going through this massive bureaucratic expansion. Wow. So learn fast, implement quickly, getting ready for the war that's to come. But for the American public back from 1939 and 1940, it's not entirely certain that a war is going to come. And it's not to say that you know, Churchill wouldn't want Roosevelt to jump in as quickly as possible. But there wasn't that broader public support from the American people, and that took some sculpting, to say the least. Was Hoover involved in that sculpting of public opinion at all? At least some of what he was doing during those years was pretty secret. So he had this broad mandate, but for instance, he ends up setting up an intelligence service that operates in Latin America, and that's done relatively secretly beginning in 1940. But Hoover is very much on the preparedness bandwagon, the idea that the threats are real, particularly the language of the fifth column in the United States, right, that the Germans, fascist forces, the Nazis have sent agents into the United States. They're plotting all sorts of things, and it's up to an agency like the FBI to keep America safe. Do they come across any of these agents? Are there any major busts on spy rings, people put on trial and prosecuted? Well, before 1941, there are a couple of big spy cases, one of which the FBI really botches. And this is a moment where they say, oh my gosh, we really have to figure out how to do this stuff. Several others where they're really pretty successful. And these are bona fide German agents trying to operate in the United States. The FBI is learning how to turn them into double agents, how to you know, send fake Morse code messages back to the Germans, etc. So they have some failures, they have some successes. In 1942, they have their biggest success of the war on this front, which is that it's kind of an incredible story, but the Germans sent two teams of saboteurs over to the United States on (laughs) U-boats. They actually pulled their submarines up to the coast of Long Island and the coast of Florida, and they just let these guys off with their bomb equipment (laughs) their, you know, American IDs, and they're supposed to go around committing acts of sabotage in the United States. They are mostly people who had spent time in the United States as German immigrants before, had come back, declared their loyalty in one manner or another to the Nazis, who then sent them back as these fine English-speaking gentlemen. But what actually happens is that one of them in particular immediately arrives, says, 
I want no part of this, goes to the FBI. Then the FBI spends a couple of very tense weeks trying to track down all of his compatriots. They succeed in doing that. They arrest everyone. Franklin Roosevelt declares that they're going to be tried in a secret military tribunal. They are tried very quickly in this secret military tribunal. And then there are eight of them all together. Six of them are executed in the electric chair almost immediately after the trial. The two that had helped the American government are sentenced to long prison sentences, but allowed to live. So it's a dramatic and pretty amazing story. And I think one that's still not very widely known. But my favorite part is just those submarines pulling up to the coast of the United States. And the one in Long Island actually got stuck. And so was sitting there, you know, above the surface of the water, right off of the Hamptons. And then finally, as the tide came back in, you know, managed to get itself back off of the beach and under the water and slipped away. Imagine if you were that U-boat, Captain. Those tense hours sat there just off the Hamptons, trying to just wait for a high tide to get the hell out of there. And all the way through you telling us that story, my mouth was open. I don't know anything about that. I'm sure many of our listeners won't know much about that. Were any of the saboteurs successful in those few days they had at trying to blow anything up or were they just rounded up so quickly in a major success for this fledgling FBI that they're not able to do anything that Hitler wanted? So they didn't end up doing anything at all, in part because they had been assigned to have their rendezvous very poetically, on the 4th of July. Okay, I see, yeah. <laughs> so that was their meeting date, but the FBI managed to round them up before that moment when these operations were supposed to start. I can start to see how Hoover was able to consolidate such a long career with successes like that in the eyes of the president, I'm sure. Maybe take us through into that post-Second World War period. I'm sure there's so many more stories from the Second World War we could get into, but we've got to get through this history. And also, we want to leave our listeners with a little bit that they can uh, go and buy the book, the vast book that they need to have on their shelf. Probably a reinforced shelf, but this is a bargain, and you need to go and get it. But if we go into the Cold War period... So we start to turn away from fascism, I guess much like in the First World War, we start to see a new threat emerging. In this case, it's a twist from the Soviet Union being an ally to an angst. Do we see Hoover's attention turn quickly towards this Red Scare and this communist threat? Hoover really started a lot of surveillance of the Communist Party during the war. So, and particularly in 1940, after the Nazi-Soviet pact, at a moment when there are lots of suspicions that for the period of the pact from 39 to 41, that the Communist Party in the United States is actually going to be a kind of secret pro-Nazi force. And so Hoover sort of takes that moment as license to infiltrate and begin this widespread surveillance program aimed at the Communist Party. Now, it's not a huge part of wartime operations, but it does a couple of really important things. It means that a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the informants, a lot of the kind of basic spy investigations that become incredibly prominent after the war had actually started percolating during the war itself. So when 1945 comes, there are lots of open questions about what's going to happen in the aftermath of the war. First, who the enemy is going to be now, and that pretty quickly becomes the Soviet Union, and we get a pretty dramatic Red Scare in the United States. But there are also real questions about what the intelligence infrastructure is now going to look like. You've had this massive boom during the war. Now we're moving into something that looks kind of like peacetime and kind of like war. And the Americans have all this global power now, all of a sudden. And so Hoover makes a bid in 1945 for the FBI also to not just be the domestic intelligence agency, but to be the American global intelligence agency, essentially for the FBI to also be what becomes the CIA. His logic for that is that on the communist question, this is both a domestic matter and a global matter. And if you've got a scattered set of intelligence forces, they're not going to be able to make these connections and understand what's going on. As we all know, Harry Truman says, 
yeah, I don't think we're going to give you that much power, Edgar. <laughs> and so we see the CIA kind of created over Hoover's objections and then this fierce rivalry, occasional cooperation, mostly fierce rivalry happening for many decades. Airplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Does he have much say in the early foundations of the CIA or how it's constructed? Or is he kept completely out of all of it as a means so he, he doesn't get his paws on that sort of level of power? Because it makes sense to me. You know, you've been so successful in the FBI. Why not put the two together and use that experience and those skills? As a president, you can understand why you wouldn't want one person technically below you to have that sort of intelligence level because, I mean, you could become in many ways more powerful than the president themselves. That and the fact that you're an unelected representative as well. But does he have any say in the construction of the CIA? He really doesn't in the end. So from 45 into 46 and 47, he's pushing pretty hard to make sure that he does. He is really roundly rebuffed. And the thing that he's really mad about, and I think never gets over, is that he had spent the war building up these contacts and this service in Latin America all throughout the Western Hemisphere. And he is told to dismantle it and to hand it all over to this new rival agency, which, by the way, he thinks is full of playboys and incompetence. The OSS during the war, which was sort of the precursor of the CIA, he hated Bill Donovan, who was running the OSS. And he also just thought it was, you know, full of communists and 
Ivy Leaguers who had no idea what they were doing. And he wasn't 100% wrong about that. But at any rate, he is really pushed out of the CIA. There are various attempts to have coordinating committees, but he has very little say over international intelligence going forward. Well, for our listeners who are interested in the history of the CIA, this year marks 75 years since the CIA was established. So in December, we're going to have a special set of series that look at some of the triumphs and the controversies of the CIA over the years. And I'm sure we might get a quote from J. Edgar Hoover or two in there, especially when we start to talk about some of those drawbacks and controversies. But back to Hoover himself. Now, We talk about this Red Scare. What major successes did he have then? I note that in your book there is a section on atomic drama. And one of his biggest challenges must have been trying to keep those atomic secrets safe. Right. So Hoover becomes one of the real architects of the second Red Scare. I think a lot of people tend to think about someone like Joseph McCarthy. Mm -hmm. But McCarthy comes pretty late in that process. And McCarthy is kind of a showman and a demagogue. But he's only there for four years. He's pretty roundly repudiated in the end. And then he drinks himself to death. Whereas Hoover is there before McCarthy. He's there during McCarthy. He's there after McCarthy. And he's a real institution builder. And so he's very busy kind of building up a bureaucratic apparatus that is going to do battle against communism and that's going to last for a very long time. And I think for Hoover, there were sort of three levels on which this struggle was going to happen. So one was what you mentioned, this espionage problem that it turns out that the United States has. The Soviet Union, through the Communist Party sometimes, sometimes independently of the party, has been infiltrating all sorts of government agencies, private industry, and it's really happening, right? There are lots of people who said this is just a fantasy. So there aren't millions of people or thousands of people, but there are hundreds of Soviet agents, sometimes in pretty important places like the Atomic Weapons Program. And so the FBI is engaged in the 40s and 50s in a whole series of pretty high stakes espionage investigations, some of which become very public, like the Rosenberg case or the Alger Hiss case, and some of which don't. There are two other levels that Hoover is engaged with, though. One is a kind of battle against domestic communism and the Communist Party in general as a kind of ungodly way of life, but also as an institution that's kind of collaborating with the Soviet Union, plotting revolution here. And so there are trials of Communist Party leaders that have much more to do with we don't like your ideas than any suggestion that they're involved in espionage. And then his third level is really this kind of big cultural campaign against communism. So Hoover spends a lot of the 40s and 50s kind of making speeches about how everyone needs to go to Sunday school in order to combat the threat of atheistic communism and shore up our national moral fiber in order you know, to engage with this existential and ideological threat. So all three of these are happening at the FBI. Sometimes they're compatible, sometimes they're not. I think the first is mostly what you want an intelligence agency doing. The other two are, I think, considerably more questionable. So he becomes a religious crusader. It's almost Hoover's religious war against communism. You mentioned at the beginning that he had a religious upbringing. Is that a direct response to that? Is this the making of the early Hoover that pushes this as a consistency through his entire life? Yeah, as a kid, he was a very serious Bible student. He taught Sunday school, and he found a lot of meaning in the kind of mentorship of his conservative ministers within the Presbyterian church in the main. And so he had been a Presbyterian for most of his life, but his public expressions of faith really skyrocket in the 40s and 50s in the context of the Cold War, the war against communism. And that's a pretty broad trend in the United States. You know, when Dwight Eisenhower, great World War II general, becomes the first Republican president in a generation, you know, one of the first things that he does is become baptized and join a church, invest in this public religiosity. And so he and Hoover end up going, he and Hoover and Richard Nixon, who's the vice president, and this whole group of kind of major Washington figures, John Foster Dulles, they all go to the National Presbyterian Church together. They're talking about religion in Sunday school. I'm 
prayer all the time. So Hoover is an important figure in that, but he's also reflecting these big trends. And let's be serious. I bet that's where a lot of decisions are made as well. You know, you've got your religious group, your religious mafia going to church together. You're going to talk about work every now and then. You're able to lobby and pressure a bit. This is his network of influence. Absolutely. And the 50s for Hoover, really, and the Eisenhower years in particular, it's just a moment where he knows everyone in Washington. Uh, He is a great bipartisan hero. We tend to think of him as this terrible villain, right? He's incredibly popular in the 1950s. You know, his approval ratings are in the 70s and the 80s, sometimes in the 90s. And he is just deep in this kind of establishment network that reveres him both as a lawman, as a kind of figure who embodies the American way of life. And then he becomes particularly friendly with Richard Nixon during these years. And that, of course, lasts into the Nixon presidency. Now, one thing that struck me about what you just said is you said that we often perceive him as a villain. But so far, we've not mentioned anything that would paint him as a villain. So why is it that one of the enduring perceptions of Hoover is as this dark operator in the corridors of Washington, D.C.? Is one part of it, I mean, I mentioned he's in a religious mafia. The other side of that, in an ironic twist, is that he decides not to really take on the mafia. And so organized crime is able to flourish in the United States under his leadership. Is that one of his darker legacies? I think there are a lot of ways to think about Hoover's dark legacies, which are a big theme in this book. So when you take on a figure like Hoover, who I think probably qualifies as the greatest villain of the 20th century in many people's minds, right? Even, say, Richard Nixon has had, you know, something of a renaissance, has lots of supporters, lots of people. But Hoover has very, very few supporters in our own day and age. So the challenge for me as a biographer was not to say that that's wrong or suggest that, you know, actually Hoover's a great hero, but to bring some texture and some nuance and some complexity to his story because he didn't stay in power for that long simply because everyone was afraid of him, though that was part of it, but also because he was pretty skilled and pretty popular and occupied a much more interesting place, I think, in the center of Washington's power networks. So Hoover's villainous reputation, I think people on the left always thought Hoover was a villain. Right? I mean, he begins his career trying to crush left-wing organizations, He pretty much does that forever. And then a lot of his modern reputation is sealed in his campaigns against the civil rights movement, against Martin Luther King, against the anti-war movement, the new left in the 60s, so pretty late in his life. There are other people who see him throughout as someone who is busy gathering dirt on major politicians, figures throughout American history and politics. And that's certainly true as well. Throughout these years, he's building up files that have a lot of sexual secrets, that have a lot of personal secrets. You know, and his method there was often to say, you find out, you know, about the senator spending time with a nice young lady who he maybe shouldn't be spending time with. The FBI would often go to a political figure like that and say, you know, Mr. Senator, we found out this thing and we just want you to know your secret's safe with us. We would, of course, never do anything. We're here to protect you and protect our nation. So that tells the senator that you have that information and he's aware of that, though you haven't technically really blackmailed him or anything along those lines. So I think that's a lot of where Hoover's villainous reputation comes from. And then he, at the FBI, was also known for being something of an internal tyrant. And by the end of his life, he's almost like a kind of cult leader, this kind of distant mercurial figure who has all these weird policies about, you know, haircuts and language and what his FBI agents are supposed to look like, has very ferocious policies against anyone who is seen to criticize him, to criticize the Bureau, either publicly or internally. And so he's this real authoritarian figure within the Bureau, though he says that he's doing this all, you know, in defense of American democracy and the American way of life. Well, that's why I ask about this question about the mafia. It's because it must have, you know, he's not a stupid man. It must have some sort of political calculation in there. Does he think that, you know, 
maybe during the Second World War, the mafia just grows to become too strong. Of course, it is helping the United States in many ways. It's getting intelligence from Sicily and from occupied Italy. Does he see the mafia as being a useful arm for the United States? What's the reason why he leaves them untouched? Well, Hoover's fundamental claim, even about organized crime, was that it was a local matter and that actually the FBI did not really have jurisdiction over a lot of these things under the laws as they existed in the 30s and 40s in particular. So by the 50s, organized crime is becoming enough of an issue that he is starting to respond. And then in 1957, there's this famous moment when a police officer in upstate New York stumbles upon this gathering of, you know, basically the mob leaders from around the entire country. They're all having dinner together. (laughs) And he stumbles upon this. They flee into the woods. Some of them are arrested. But that's really the moment that publicly and certainly for Hoover, he says, okay, I've been saying there's no national crime syndicate. I've been saying this is a local matter. But apparently they do all really meet in meetings to, you know, divvy up their territory and such. And at that point, the FBI does start conducting a series of secret operations, particularly against the Chicago mob. But those are happening in secret. So when Robert Kennedy comes along as attorney general in the 60s and says, why hasn't anyone been doing anything? I, the young crusading attorney general, will step in. Hoover's, of course, incredibly mad about that. They do step up their investigations of the mob. Interestingly, it leads them straight back to the Kennedys (laughs) because it turns out that John Kennedy and a very prominent Chicago mobster actually share a girlfriend so there's all sorts of interesting scandalous stuff going on in the 60s. But, you know, Hoover's mad because he thinks that the FBI has been doing more against organized crime than it's really getting credit for. Wow. Well, I think we could do a whole episode on that incident alone. But there is a, a true controversy and a real stain on Hoover's reputation that I wanted to get into. He does, as you mentioned really take a concerted effort to try and tackle the civil rights movement, which he sees as a threat to the United States, in particularly with a dedicated investigation into Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I've just come back from Montgomery, Alabama, actually. I've been doing a a lot of work around the history of all of this um, in the city. And there's very much a divided history in the city itself. Montgomery is still a rather strange place. But at this point in time, I can only imagine that Hoover as a man who is a product of that period, like we said, in the late 1800s and uh, segregated Washington, D.C., much like he's motivated by religion in one hand, is perhaps motivated by his perceptions of race in another. His actions against the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr., are they racially motivated? Are they racist actions? Absolutely. Is that the only motivation? Is that the only way to understand them? There are some complications to the story, but there's no question that Hoover's racial views shaped how he looked at the civil rights movement, shaped his tendency to see almost any form of black insurgency, black protest, black politics from a very early period, and then certainly in an escalated way in the 1960s, as a form of subversion, a threat to the social order, all of those pieces. So Everything that the FBI does during those years around civil rights is shaped by Hoover's racial worldview. And the FBI itself as an institution is shaped by Hoover's racism in lots of different ways. Is it a largely white organization? He does not employ black men as agents, except in very particular ways. So his personal staff the man who is his greeter, the man who is his driver, they are black men. And at a certain point when in the 40s, the NAACP is really pushing the FBI to hire black men as agents, Hoover goes ahead and sends those guys to Quantico, calls them agents, but then brings them back into what are really, you know, essentially personal servant positions. So there are a very, very small number of black agents during Hoover's career. On the question of Martin Luther King, it's absolutely clear that Hoover's racism is shaping how he thinks about King, how he interprets King, how he interprets the civil rights movement itself. Hoover also pointed to several other aspects of what was going on that he would have said are the real reasons behind the FBI's investigation. So one is that King was pretty close to a couple of men 
who had been part of the Communist Party's secret, sometimes open, but often secret apparatus. The FBI knows this. They have informants telling them this. King is denying this. Those men are denying this. And so Hoover's worried about that. He's worried about what it means if, in fact, the party is secretly quite close to King. He's mad that King is denying this. And even when the Kennedy administration comes in and says, sever your ties with these guys, we can't have this, King's pretty evasive about that, wanting to give his friends and allies the benefit of the doubt. So that's really how a lot of the investigation into King gets started. But very quickly, it morphs beyond that. The FBI begins wiretapping first those figures and then King himself. They begin planting bugs in King's hotel rooms. And when they begin doing that, they find out quite a lot about King's rather capacious extramarital sexual activities, at which point Hoover says, aha, We have real dirt on him. And he also expresses outrage at, you know, King, the kind of Baptist minister, this sainted public figure, actually doing all of this behind the scenes. So this enrages Hoover on all of his personal levels. Exactly. And so, you know, he's coming to see Martin Luther King as someone who, through the lens of sort of all of these outsized ideas about black sexuality and subversion, right, is coming to embody all of that to Hoover. And so the FBI really conducts an outrageous campaign, not only of surveillance, but of open harassment against King. Probably the most famous moment in that, and one where I had one of my favorite research discoveries ever, was that in late 1964, the FBI put together an anonymous letter to King, along with a highlights reel of the tapes from his hotel rooms, This is a letter that purports to be from a black supporter saying, you know, King, I thought you were such a saint, but now I know that you're this, you know, terrible, degraded beast, right? Really over the top language. And it ends by saying, King, you know what you have to do and you only have about a month to do it. King interpreted that as an attempt to get him to commit suicide. And so it's known as the King suicide letter. So the existence of that letter has been known for a long time, but because the National Archives recently reprocessed some of Hoover's files, I actually came across the first unredacted version of that letter that anyone had seen. And when I saw that in the archives, I just thought, holy cow, I know what that is. And so was able to write about that, you know, a few years ago and put it out into the world. That is unbelievable. That must have been one hell of a day. You're in the archives, you're trawling through endless files. We know how it goes. You could spend the whole day there and find nothing that you wanted to find. But to come across that document, such an important document in history, it must have been a highlight of your entire research journey. Yeah, it's been all downhill since then. (laughs) (laughs) Including this podcast. Now... (laughs) Bev, thank you so much for taking us through this history of J. Edgar Hoover, a man who, despite these controversies, retained that position until the age of 77, by which time he had been FBI chief for 48 years, he'd served eight presidents, 18 attorney generals, and to put that into some sort of perspective, he was FBI head when Calvin Coolidge was president and ended when Richard Nixon was in the White House. You have to tell us. With all that in mind, my final question to you is how should we remember J. Edgar Hoover? I think that we should remember him as someone who kind of embodied two political traditions. One, this kind of progressive tradition of government service and state building and bureaucracy. The other, this tradition of kind of avenging social conservatism. And he put those two together in the institution of the FBI spent most of the 20th century enforcing what he and he alone thought were the proper limits of American democracy and political participation. And I think both that concentration of power and what he did with it is really a cautionary tale to all of us today. So I'd say don't do that again. Well, the microphone is all yours. Tell us where can we read more about that cautionary tale? So you can read more about it in my brand new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, 
publication date is November 22nd, which happens to be the day of the Kennedy assassination, but that is purely by coincidence and not by design. The Kennedy assassination is in there in the book. There are also lots and lots of photos. So for those who want to flip around and get to the episodes that they're interested in, that's very possible. Or you can read all 800 and some pages from start to finish. I highly recommend it. You can go through all the photos and the pictures as well. Again, another thing I highly recommend. You made a good deal with your publisher to be able to get that many photos in it as well. It's not often you're able to almost look at an archive of photos within one book. Bev, thank you so much for your time. As you know, you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks, it was great. Thanks for listening. And if you're interested in American history, don't forget to check out our sister podcast, American History Hit. It's hosted by Don Wildman and has a mix of episodes on everything from Downton Abbey, The First Americans, The Oregon Trail, and The First Thanksgiving. Follow wherever you get your podcasts. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day, from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross, and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.